Listening to the Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, ho, 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 we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, and a person who refuses to sing Christmas songs. In fact, I cannot believe that you just said ho, ho, ho. I don't think I've ever heard you say yeah, that phrase. Well, there's a first time and a last time for everything. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover. And even maybe if you aren't, I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict. And this time of year, my drink of choice is a latte with a half pump of peppermint. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish topics like authors in the news, recent book-to-film adaptations, weird stuff we've Googled while reading, and our TBR count. We are glad you're here. So for our final episode of 2023, we chat with Anna Petoniak, whose fourth novel, The Helsinki Affair, has been named as a best thriller of 2023 by The Washington Post. Anna has been a longtime fan of spy novels and decided to try her hand at writing the genre. While spy novels have usually been written by and about men, Anna shows that women agents can be just as smart, sly, and ballsy. With a background in the publishing industry, Anna discusses how this experience impacted her journey writing, finding an agent, and working to get her novel into the world. We also discuss how Anna is very different from me on the Christmas front and why tacos were not her favorite food from a trip to Mexico. You'll be surprised by what was. But first... We need to remind everybody, this is our last episode of the season, season nine. We are going to be taking a month hiatus to spend the holidays with our families and friends, but we will have some episodes where we will share our appearances on other podcasts, including our friends Mel and David at Strong Sense of Place and the ladies at the Thrillers by the Book Club podcast. And there'll probably be a few replays in there as well. I I do want to mention, I am looking forward to giving book recommendations next season, you all. So in season 10, I have a new project, which is that I would like to give book recommendations. So if you're looking for a, a book that you think would be a good discussion for your book club, if you have to buy a, you know, a birthday gift for a book lover in your life and you don't know what to get them or you just want one for yourself, hey, this is a free service. All you have to do is <laughs> send us a message on our on our website or contact us through our socials, tell us, you know, what you're looking for and we will probably mainly me recommend a similar read that you can add if this were my idea, actually, it wouldn't be my idea, but I'd be like, this is what the Google is for. Look up books on the Google. No, but the Google, <laughs> it can tell you basically the synopsis, but that doesn't give you the feel of the book. Oh, you that's know? true. You know, that's you need true. you need a human to do that. You need a that's human to true. do that. So, Carrie, that's true. So, Carrie, I have been mildly obsessed with a new show that I'm watching. And it I'm has- shocked. You getting mildly obsessed with anything. That's not what you do. <laughs> And it has to do with this episode. So we started watching a show on Apple Plus called Slow Horses. 
It stars Gary Oldman. It is based on a series of spy novels by Mick Herron. And it is about a department of MI5 in Britain where all of the screw-up spies are sent. Uh, They can't actually get rid of them, but they send them to this dreary-looking office across town where they sit and do not much of anything. And they're all a little frustrated because they want to be doing spy exciting stuff, right? And the head of this department is somebody named Jackson Lamb, who is played by Gary Ullman. He is the exact opposite of what you would imagine like James Bond to be. His hair always looks like it's unwashed. He's constantly burping and farting. He's got holes in his socks with his feet on the, on his desk. He's always is smoking a cigarette, but he's a little bit repulsive, right? Mm. And he's not very pleasant generally. To me, that would be a perfect person to be a spy because nobody would pay a lick of attention to him. Because they're so gross and they blend in with the rest of humanity. You know, burping, <laughs> farting, greasy hair. Yeah. I mean, if I saw somebody who looked like Daniel Craig as James Bond, I would be like, totally a spy. But <laughs> if I saw somebody like this person that you're describing, I'd be like, well, that's just a guy who, you know, probably left Walmart not too long ago. <laughs> Well, the thing is, he apparently, in his former buying days, before the Cold War ended, was a super spy. Mm. Anyway, there's three seasons to the show. The third season released fairly recently. We're on the second season. I love the show. So I wanted to throw that out there so that, you know, since we're talking about espionage fiction today... There is a show and another series uh, by an author, Mick Heron, that you can give a try. So, hey, I have to ask you a question. So we finished season one of Russian Doll. Yeah. And we're now in season two. And not too long ago, you were talking about shows with time loops and time travel. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering how did Russian Doll fit into because the first season is like a time loop, whereas the second season is it's a time loop, but it's it's more time travel, and so I'm curious how this fits into your fascination I, with those. Uh, I have not seen the second season. The first season we saw a couple of years ago, and yes, you're right. It is definitely a time loop. It's like. Groundhog Day, right? Like mm-hmm. she's reliving the same day over and over and over again. Right. Uh, I really liked the first season. I guess I didn't find that time loop to be problematic. I didn't not understand anything. Right. Uh, right. You know, like it didn't make my brain hurt. Really. Right. The second season might make your brain hurt a little. Uh, yeah. We watched just a couple episodes and it just didn't thrill me. We didn't continue. Now, maybe if I kept watching, I would have gotten into it more. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, meh. And I don't remember why I felt that way. Maybe it was because it made my brain hurt. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, we've only watched like two episodes of it. But I mean, I'm still liking it. So the woman who plays the main character in that uh What's her name? Natasha. Leon. She is a unique character. (laughs) I love how she talks. Yeah. And I think she might just talk that way in real life, too. Like, I kind of think that her character on here is the same as her real personality. (laughs) I could be wrong. And so I did enjoy it for one season. But, like, I don't know that I would want to see it all the time. Like, I think the shtick might get old for me. Uh. 
I, I, I like it. She's rough around the edges. I like that in the characters. So if you're a, a Louisvillian who's listening to this, I want to put a plug in for Books and Brews 502, which is a winter program that the Louisville Free Public Library does. Uh, it's basically, a, it's sort of like a summer reading program that kids do, but they do it for adults and it's in the winter and they have events at breweries and at coffee shops around town. You and I have gone to a couple of events in the past. I've already gone to two this year. It's from Mm. December to the end of February. You can earn points to get prizes. I am just aiming for one of their new stickers. Have you seen the sticker? I've already earned my sticker. You have? I already did it because you log books too. And I've already Mm. logged enough books to earn my sticker. I guess I can log my books. You can log books and get points. You can go to pop-ups and get points. Mm -hmm. My problem is I just don't, it's too much energy to try to log books, but maybe I will so I can get this cool sticker called the Book Fiend. Yes. Donald's used to have a character that looked like this, just kind of like almost like a cousin it character. They had hair, that a furry character. Anyway, that's what this fiend is, right? Yeah. And, and it's holding a book and looks like a coffee mug. And I think that it is a throwback to one of their summer reading campaigns back in the 70s. Mm. Uh, so anyway, it's it's cool. Nobody else will care about that, probably. No, <laughs> but, just us. but I think it's cool. Just us. <laughs> They've had cool prizes in the past. When you earn so many points, you can sort of put your name in the pot for prizes and you get to slot where you would want to get a prize from. You could put Carmichael's or you could put Louisville Cream, which I I think is kind of nice that they personalize it in that way so that you're not just winning a prize for something that you're never going to use. But you and I went to a book event this past weekend, which is what they called a book tasting. And I Mm -hmm. think this might be a new thing for them. And I thought it was so fun. It was very cool. It was an event that was at a a place called Abel. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correct. Abel Cafe. A-B-O-L, and it is an Ethiopian coffee shop and cafe in town. They had an event there where you could go and you could, of course, you know, sample food and drink there, but you could also sample books. So they gave us this thing that looked like a menu with descriptions of each of the books. You could tell the librarian who was there which ones you would like to sample and they'd bring you the book to look at. And if you wanted to check it out on your library card, you could do it at that time. And we met our, our friend Bethany and some some new book friends, and it was it was fun. Check out your local library this holiday season, and it would be a great time to check out Anna Petoniak's The Helsinki Affair, which came out in November. The holiday is the perfect time. We're here with our guest, Anna Petoniak, author of The Helsinki Affair, and we're so excited to chat with you, Anna. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I gobbled your book up about a month or a month and a half ago. It had been a long time since I had read any spy fiction. And so your book, The Helsinki Affair, was really a breath of fresh air from some other things I was reading. So you are the author of four books, including this one, The Helsinki Affair, which published November 14th of this year. Mm -hmm. Could you give our listeners just a brief overview of what it's about? And and what inspired it? 
Sure, of course. So the Helsinki Affair is an international spy thriller about an ambitious young CIA officer named Amanda Cole, who is drawn into solving a Russian-backed conspiracy being leveled against the United States. But as she wades deeper into it, she discovers that her own father, Charlie Cole, who was a CIA officer before her, has some kind of mysterious connection to this conspiracy. So as she unravels the reality of what's happening, she has to decide where her loyalty really lies, to her father or to her country and the CIA. So that's the uh, <laughs> that's the elevator pitch for the book. And the background to this is that I've been an avid reader of spy fiction for a very long time. It's a genre I discovered in my 20s and just couldn't get enough of it. I sort of inhaled these books by John le Carre and Alan First and Graham Greene and others. I always thought, you know, I really love these books. I love the high stakes adrenaline of it. I love the moral complexity. I love the sort of character studies that these writers are able to undertake within the structure of spy fiction. But it always struck me that most of these books were written by men and about men. And I always thought, you know, I want a novel in that vein, but written by a woman and about a woman. So that had been churning in the back of my imagination for a long time before I ever actually started writing The Helsinki Affair. So I brought that kind of energy with me into writing this book. I wrote this book starting in March 2020. So shortly Ooh. after the world had <laughs> shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during the pandemic. And I think there was something about the pandemic that was actually very helpful creatively, which sounds like an odd thing to say, describing a time that was so dark and terrible around the world. But I really felt this sense of, you know, the world might be ending. Who knows how long we're all going to be here? I want to write the book that I've always wanted to write. And I had this idea come into mind for the opening scene of the Helsinki affair when this Russian defector walks into the American embassy in Rome and says that he knows about an imminent assassination of an important American politician. And there's the CIA officer, Amanda Cole, who decides to take the warning seriously. So that's where the book unfolded from this place of wanting to write the book that I'd always wanted to read. And also just this image of a man walking into an embassy carrying a dire warning. You embrace that quote that we have from Toni Morrison, that if you don't see what it is that you want to read write it yourself. And, you know, she worked in publishing and so have you. You worked in publishing for several years before you started writing. So what what made you want to take the plunge and start writing instead of being on the publishing end? Yeah. So I, I did work in publishing for a long time. That was my first career right out of college. And I loved working in publishing. Working as an editor is 
a fantastic job if you're a book lover. Uh, so much so that for a long time, when I was doing both things, when I was working as an editor at Random House and writing fiction in the mornings before work, I really felt that I couldn't decide between the two. I wanted to keep doing both for as long as I possibly could. But I think the part of the reason why I was drawn to publishing right out of college is that I was an English major, a book lover. I'd always been drawn to that world and had daydreams of becoming a writer when I was a little younger, when I was a kid. But graduating from college, you're 22 years old, it's not entirely practical nor even feasible to just set up shop as a novelist and pay your rent with this book contract that you hope to get someday. I needed a, a job where I could, you know, make a salary and have health insurance and all of that good stuff. And I think also when I was right out of college, I felt a little bit bashful about calling myself a writer. I wasn't sure that I really had what it took to write a novel. I'd never written a novel before. So I wound up being drawn to book publishing. And it was a great career move to make. I really enjoyed working in publishing. I started off as a subsidiary rights assistant at Penguin and then moved over to Random House. This was back when they were still separate companies. They're now mm. merged into right. one, uh, one giant company. But I moved over to Random House, started off as an editorial assistant, and gradually worked my way up. And working in editorial taught me so much about how a book gets made, how it gets written, how it gets revised, the considerations around structure and pacing and character development that go into writing a book. And for me, it was really illuminating because when I had studied literature in college, I'd always read the book in the final form. You know, you read Virginia Woolf or you read any novel and it's the version of To the Lighthouse that is the very final polished version. So I'd always thought of books as a kind of static entity, like you write a book and it exists and then you read it. And it comes out exactly the way that it was published. Maybe? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's just flows from the pen and, you know, it's perfection. And so of course, when I had that perspective, around the books I was reading, of course, I felt daunted because I thought I could never write a book that was just forget perfect, just like <laughs> coherent on the first try. Because anytime I did try writing, it just came out a mess. But of course, what you don't see when you're studying literature in college is how much revision goes into the creation of that final product. So when I worked in publishing, I began to see up close and personal just how much work went into making a book better. And I began to see that even the most talented writers in the world have to do a lot of revision. It's pretty much never perfect on the first try for anybody. So that gave me a little more courage to think about maybe writing my own book someday. It's like it lowered the threshold for me, that it became a little less daunting because I found myself thinking, well, I definitely can't write a perfect book. I'm not even sure I can write a good book, but I can definitely write something bad <laughs> and then I can try to make it better. <laughs> work at it. 
So that experience in publishing gave me the courage I needed to take the first step. And at the same time, having worked in this corporate setting for a year or two, I began to feel the itch to have something creative that just belonged to me. It had nothing to do with my salary or my bosses or anything like that. It was this desire for a place where I could just kind of play and be a little bit freer and a little bit lighter. So that's everything that went into the the first step of writing that first draft of that first novel. So once you had written it and sent it off, did the fact that you sort of know how the process works, did that make it better or worse for you? Just be were like, were you looking for code words and like things that they sent you to go, oh, I know what this mm-hmm. means and it's not good? Yeah, I would say that it's always been a little bit of a double-edged sword, the knowledge that I have from publishing. But at the initial outset of it, I would say it was hugely helpful that I worked in publishing as I was moving into the phase of getting ready to share the work. So I wrote my first book in the mornings before work, and it took me you know, about three years to get it to a place where I had a draft that I felt ready to start querying literary agents with. And I went through that process much as any writer would. You know, you send an agent an email, you give a little description of the book, and you ask whether they'd like to read the manuscript. I definitely had an advantage in that I knew who a lot of these agents were. I didn't necessarily know them personally, but I was aware of them. I was aware of their profile, of the kinds of writers they typically represent. So it allowed me to be a little bit more targeted and focused in terms of, you know, this person might actually like my book. So I I went through that process. I got a lot of rejections, a lot, a lot, a lot of rejections from agents. But eventually I did find an agent who decided to take me on. And she then submitted the manuscript to a number of publishers. And we avoided my own publisher, Random House, because we wanted to keep those two things separate. And the thought of one of my colleagues reading my book and deciding whether or not to make an offer on it just made me feel like this huge internal cringe. Like I couldn't yeah. do that. So again, it was helpful to know what step one, step two, step three were. Because for a lot of writers, they go into it and they have no idea what goes into the sausage making machinery of publishing. And it is quite confusing from the outside. So I knew what to anticipate. But at the same time, sometimes when you know what to anticipate, it can make you feel a little more stressed or overthinking things than you really ought to. It's always been a little bit of a double-edged sword in that regard. Well, when I was doing a little bit of research about spy novels, I googled spy novels written by women, and a good portion of them seemed to be like historical fiction or historical mysteries, you know, concentrating on spies during the world wars. But women have always been effective spies, I think, because they are underestimated, Mm -hmm. but they're also often portrayed as using their sex appeal. But your protagonist, Amanda, is a different kind of spy in a different kind of period in history. So when you were talking about you wanted to write a spy novel that featured women, but you couldn't really find it, what were the skills, attributes that you wanted to give Amanda that made her different? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great 
point that you're making, which is that a lot of the spy fiction centered around women is historical in nature. I'm not quite sure why that's the case. It might be that historical fiction is a genre that's read more by women than by men. And so maybe there's a perception among publishers that the market will be stronger for spy fiction if it has a historical component. That's Mm. pure conjecture on my part. But I do think that part of the reason why we've seen relatively few works of, let's call it international spy fiction with a more contemporary setting is because it's perceived that, you know, only men read those books. And so there's less of a demand out there for books centered around women, which I'm not sure that's actually true. So we'll, I guess we'll find out <laughs> when the Helsinki affair comes out. But yeah, it was very much a conscious decision not to make Amanda like a seductress, a Matahari type. That was just not the kind of woman I wanted to put forth before me. I think in a lot of ways, when I'm writing a given fictional character, you know, it's both like a reflection of some of my own beliefs and instincts. And it's a way of putting little bits of your subconscious onto the page. But I also find that often when I'm writing these fictional characters, the ones that I admire, the ones that aren't necessarily the villains, I'm giving them qualities that I want more of in myself. It's like I'm writing role models for myself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so for a woman like Amanda, I admire so much her tenacity and her bravery and her stubbornness and the way she learns to push back a little bit against authority. I want to be more like that. I don't necessarily feel that I want to move through the world, you know, wielding my sexuality to get me ahead. That's never been my jam. And I think that the downside to that, of course, is that people, you know, they just put you in a bucket and they assume that, you know, that's all that you are. And there have been so many depictions of that kind of woman in spy fiction before, whether in books or in movies where, It's this sort of temptress figure, this seductress figure. And I'm sure that has happened plenty of times in history. But at the same time, women are so much more than just sex pots or just beautiful arm candy or just, you know, you name it. So I very much wanted to write these female figures who were multidimensional and were true to the women I've known and admired in my own life. Something just occurred to me when you were saying that, the idea of the female spy as seductress. Do you think that also, I, I could see that if that's kind of the image of the female spy, then it sort of makes the people who fall for that, I think it kind of undermines them too, that they would be so easily, you know, they're like, boobies and and then they forget (laughs) what they're doing you know it undermines both really yeah yeah it it categorizes women as sexual manipulators and men Mm -hmm. as gullible dupes which again that's a trope we have seen countless times not just in spy fiction but in all kinds of fiction and 
in books and movies and whatever it might be. And I'm just not sure we need more of that in the world. Uh, because I think it's, it, it's like a cliche. It's a trope and it's only one small sliver of reality. So yeah, I'm very much interested in giving women more power, more agency, more autonomy and ideally writing, you know, male characters too, who, Maybe at the outset, they do underestimate these women, but hopefully they learn over time not to underestimate these women and not to view them as just sexual objects. Well, I'm always interested in the the background, the research that writers do. I find that really fascinating. So you did some traveling to immerse yourself in what you were writing. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I traveled to Russia and Finland briefly for not nearly long enough in late 2019. So not long before the whole you know world shut down mm. in spring 2020. And that trip was an interesting sort of halfway point. It was kind of research for the book I wrote prior to the Helsinki Affair, which is a novel called Our American Friend. And Our American Friend, which came out in February 2022, was sort of my on-ramp into spy fiction. That novel is, I would say, 50% historical fiction, 50% spy thriller. It was a little bit of a blend of genres. And that book also had some storylines that took place in Russia. And I thought to myself as I was working on Our American Friend, you know, I really want to be able to capture the feeling of standing on a street in Moscow. And I feel like I need to breathe the air in order to capture that feeling. So we had the chance to take this trip. And it was such a fascinating trip. I really, really enjoyed that. I've been, you know, an avid reader of Russian literature for a long time. I've been fascinated and horrified by much of Russian history, both you know, in the far past and also contemporary, it's it's a really strange country and a very interesting country. So that trip was so helpful just for giving us the chance to talk to some men and women who lived in Russia and to get a little bit more of their perspective and to sort of see some of the principles that I'd read about actually playing out in, you know, three-dimensional reality. So that trip gave me a plethora of inspiration, some of which made it into Our American Friend, but a lot of which got channeled into the Helsinki Affair. And in retrospect, I'm so glad that I took that trip not long before COVID because, you know, when we moved into the phase of just being stuck inside, sitting at our desks, uh, not able to go anywhere, I was able to rewind the tape in my mind and go back to a lot of the observations from that trip. And it was a great form of armchair travel, immersing myself in that world. Well, although Amanda and her father have things in common, you know, they're both worked for the CIA, they also have a huge emotional divide. Mm -hmm. Because when you're a spy, it's hard to develop relationships with people because your whole life is something that you can't talk about, or worse, mm -hmm. it can be used against you. So I'm wondering if you, you know, talk to any retired spies or agents and ask them how it affected them. It seems like it could be a really lonely life. Yeah, 
I think it's hugely lonely. I think that it's a real struggle to find ways to almost like maintain your humanity as a spy to not feel like you're just totally isolated and drifting around. So most of my research was just based on reading. I read mm-hmm. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of you know memoirs by former spies, biographies, works of history, works of narrative nonfiction. And that was incredibly helpful for just getting me into the mindset of a spy and what kind of toll it takes on your personal life. And the toll is often quite enormous. And what kind of you know, psychological background most of these people come from. I think that you see this common thread among spies of they like to break the rules. They like to march to the beat of their own drum. They have to be comfortable with a lot of risk, a lot of thinking on their feet. And they're very comfortable throwing caution to the wind. So I gleaned a lot of that from reading, but I did have the chance Again, this was in late 2019, and it was partially research for our American friend in line with a Russia trip, but also partially research for this next book I was going to write. I took a trip down to CIA headquarters in Langley. I have a friend who used to work in the intelligence community. Uh, He's now in a different government agency, and he had a friend who connected me with a friend uh, at the press office of the CIA. And they do this on a semi-regular basis. They'll bring novelists or screenwriters into the agency to answer some of their questions and, you know, in their mind, dispel some common misconceptions or common myths about the CIA. So I was able to spend an afternoon talking to a couple of employees at the agency, including uh, someone who had worked as, you know, a field officer in Berlin during the Cold War and is now in more of a position of like an in-house historian. So he sort of keeps track of some of the case histories in the CIA. So I had the chance to spend a few hours chatting with these folks and asking them lots of questions and hearing their perspective on what it was like to work in this field. and. It was so interesting. The thing that struck me most is this ability to bluff your way out of dangerous situations. I think a lot of spies have been in the position of, you know, they're out there living their life under their diplomatic cover, you know, posing as an employee of the State Department, posing as an employee of the embassy. And then they run into someone who knows them under a different guise. And they're caught between, you know, the person they're currently meeting with and the other person who just catches them and they have to think of a way to talk themselves out of this sticky situation. So there's so much that's really hard about being a spy. And it's really fun to write characters who get to, you know, possess some of those traits and be smart and be savvy and think on their feet. One of my favorite characters in the book was Calf, and she is an an older female agent. And Amanda brings her in to help her on this case, or maybe I should say the CIA sends her over to help Amanda with this case. But what I loved about it is that Amanda is a fairly young spy. Calf Mm -hmm. is older and more experienced. 
and they work with each other in a very supportive partnership. But sometimes I feel like in books like this, where women are sort of working in a field that's you think of as being more male centered, that women are have more backstabbing storylines. Mm-hmm. You know, they're yep. not supportive of one another. And so what I found refreshing about this was that was not the relationship between these two. You know, it it kind of unfolded organically. Once I brought Kath into the mix, I had so much fun writing her. She's probably my favorite character to write in this book because she is, you know, she's this older woman. She's in her 70s. She is outspoken and pretty ballsy and just marches to the beat of her own Yeah, she just doesn't care. You know, she's going to do her own thing. I mean, part of it, I think, is probably just being 70. I mean, I'm I'm 50, and I feel like I'm well on my way to that, and I'm not a spy, so. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I think that so many of the older women I know are, my God, they're my inspiration because they are, they're so comfortable with themselves. They have this confidence that I think is just hard to come by unless you have a good amount of life under your belt. And Cav has a lot of life under her belt. And I mean, she kind of took charge of herself as I was writing these scenes. It very much wasn't me having to deliberately craft her. Like she really flowed a little bit more effortlessly as I was writing those scenes. And I think Cav is an instance of someone who I very much wrote as a role model for myself, because my God, I would love to be more like Kath Frost. I'm, I'm probably, I'm a lot more like Amanda, and then I'm like a little more cautious, more of a rule follower, but Kath is such a badass, and I hope to become more and more like Kath as I get older. But when Kath entered the mix, there is such a difference between her and Amanda, even though they're both, you know, they're both women who work at the CIA, they're both smart, they're both ambitious in their own ways. There's such a difference between them that I never thought of them as, you know, rivals. It's almost like they don't even swim in the same lane. They're, mm-hmm. They both have their own ways of moving forward. And I think that this is why women so often get pitted into this rivalrous catfight dynamic because the way that a book is structured or the way that a dynamic is structured, it's seen that, oh, women are always like this. They're always going to both be using this tool or that tool to their advantage. And so that inherently pits them against one another. But women exist in every single shade and spectrum of behavior under the sun. Like women are as different from one another as as any man is different from another man. So letting Amanda and Kath both be their own people, be people who are quite different from one another, I think really introduced this breathing room into their dynamic, which means that it just felt exceedingly unlikely that they would ever slip into that more rivalrous state of mind. And that was very much something I wanted to have be present in the book. Yeah. Well, I I really enjoyed that that dynamic. You're a big fan of spy fiction, which you've mentioned. Who were some of your favorite spy fiction authors or characters? Yeah. So John Le Carre is probably my all-time favorite. I've read not all of his books because he was incredibly prolific, but I've read a lot of his books. And he's just a genius novelist full stop. The fact that he chose 
spy fiction as his genre is almost incidental to how talented he is as a novelist. I think he could have written any kind of fiction and he would have been quite brilliant at it. He's just such an excellent student of human nature. He has a great eye for detail, incredibly observant, and never shies away from complexity and always willing to peel back another layer and another layer and another layer on these characters. His novels also have this kind of slow burn quality that I really enjoy, where he's not rushing you right into a car chase scene or an action scene on page one. He lets the story unfold with a little bit more patience, which I think is really rewarding as a reader. Um, some of those some of those qualities you mentioned are probably what made him a good spy as well, because he's a former spy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah he's he has that that observant quality. He probably was an amazing student of human nature even when he was in the field working for MI5 and MI6. So yeah, I do think there's there are certain commonalities between the novelist yeah. and the spy. Both are a little bit detached, a little bit observant, and always you know wondering what's really going on. So as far as future spy novels, do you do you think you'll do any more? And if so, what country would you have them set? Where would you investigate in a new spy novel? I'm so glad you asked that. It is my plan and my hope to write more spy novels. Featuring, you know, Amanda Cole and Kath Frost and some of the other characters from Helsinki. Yeah, I've never written, you know, sequels before. I've never had characters recurring across my novels. And I just feel so enamored of these women. And I had so much fun writing them that when I reached the end of the Helsinki affair, I thought, I'm not done with them. I want to spend more time with them and I want to see, you know, what other adventures they might get up to. So, I think that we're at a time right now when the whole Russia versus America thing really does sort of dominate a lot of the news. And what I loved about writing The Helsinki Affair was how that dynamic, that Russia versus America dynamic, allowed me to write scenes set in the present day and also to go back in time to the Cold War and explore some of those parallels and the reverberative effects. So I expect that there will always be a little bit of a Russia angle to the next book I'm working on, or the, let's say the next few books I work on. But what I love about spy fiction is that it lets you sort of roam anywhere around the world. You don't really need to come up with very elaborate reasons for sending a spy to this country or that country. So I expect that the next few books I write will have some scenes in Russia, probably have some scenes in Rome, because that's where Amanda's still stationed. I think London is a great setting Mm. because you do have such Mm. a Russian community there. And the next book I'm working on is going to have some scenes in Switzerland. I think Switzerland is such a, it's such an interesting metaphor of a place, this place of neutrality where you know, they're not allied with the states nor with Russia. And, you know, Swiss banking, the kind of layers of concealment that happen happen there, they give you a lot of, you know, fun possibility as a novelist. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, good. I, I really enjoyed your book. Well, I think now is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. are back with Anna Petoniak, the author of The Helsinki Affair. And I'm always here with Carrie. So Carrie, what have you been reading recently? I was on a big spooky thing. I was reading all sorts of horror books. And I don't know, I was really feeling Halloween this year, I guess. But I read the second horror book by J.H. Marker. He's a Louisville author. He's written other historical fictions. But his first horror book I read last year, maybe, The Nightmare Man, and I absolutely loved it. And so his second horror novel, it's called Mr. Lullaby. So it's kind of in the same universe. Of one of the characters from The Nightmare Man was mentioned in this, but for the most part, the characters are different. So the town is called Herod's Reach, and the townspeople who live there know to keep away from the train tunnel because it isn't safe. An incident three years prior has left one local boy named Sully in a coma. But recently, the sheriff and the deputy sheriff have discovered two dead bodies at the tunnel, and they have these strange calling cards that have to do with lullabies. And so the deputy sheriff, Beth, along with Sully's older brother, Gideon, begin to try to piece things together, like like what's going on, where did these bodies come from, and also why are these weird deer starting to appear? And why are moths attracted to these certain trees? And why are the leaves white with red polka dots? All these just strange things start to happen. So Beth and Gideon learn that Sully, despite seeming to be in a coma, is actually in a world called La La Land, where nightmares are real. And the tunnel is a bit of a portal through which this other world is trying to break into reality. So it was definitely weird, definitely creepy, and I'm looking forward to reading the next book that uh, J.H. Marker creates in this nightmare realm that he's cooked up. The cover of it reminded me of Stephen King's It, because it shows a little boy in a yellow slicker and rain boots. And if you've seen any of the adaptations of it or read the book, you know, about Georgie and he goes out to sail his little sailboat and it's raining and he's got on his, you know, yellow raincoat. Anyway, there's some similarities there. And I know that Marker is a huge Stephen King fan. So Uh, if if you like horror, I recommend it. So Anna, have you been reading a spy novel? I have. I am <laughs> not predictable. So this is very, very much appropriate to our conversation. It's John Le Carre. I mean, as I mentioned before, the gift of him being so prolific is that there are always books of his that I'd never quite got around to earlier. So this is a, uh, it's a novel called The Looking Glass War, which is one of his earlier novels. He wrote it, I think, in the 60s. It was the first novel he wrote after his big breakout, which was The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. And for me, it's it's almost like a comfort read, um, especially these couple weeks before you have a new book come out as an author. You, you're always a little nervous. You know, you're 
you're anxious to see how the book is going to do. So I'm finding it really comforting to just revisit this favorite old writer and just get swept away into his story. So that is one book that I'm very much enjoying right now. But I also want to shout out a book I recently finished reading that uh, just came out this fall. And this is a novel called Murder by Degrees. (laughs) We just interviewed her. We did. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Wow. So there'll be like a little crossover. Ritu Mukherjee. um, I suppose your listeners may very well know all about this great book. And I was lucky enough to moderate her launch event in New York City. My publicist at Simon & Schuster, and we we have Simon & Schuster in common, which is how I got my hands on this early copy, uh, sent me a galley of the novel. And I'll just give a quick summation of it for any of your listeners who maybe didn't listen to Ritu's interview episode. But it's a historical mystery set in the 1870s in Philadelphia, and it follows this female doctor, Dr. Lydia Weston, who gets drawn into this case when one of her patients turns up dead. And she has to sort of step forward and help the local Philadelphia detectives unravel some of the mystery around this young woman. And She's just, she's such a fantastic writer. I loved the setting. I loved that feeling of, you know, the cobblestone streets and the, you know, the misty nights and the flickering gas lamps. It just felt, I read the book in October. It felt like a great spooky season read. But I also just think it has this coziness that means it's probably great to read throughout the fall and winter. And I just found that the writing had such a degree of confidence and self-assurance and the twists were so well done. I couldn't believe it was her first novel. To me, it read like the work of someone who's you know written several novels. So I, I really enjoyed that and highly, highly recommend it. Hmm. That was a good one. I sort of love it when worlds collide. Yeah. Like, all right. Well, Amy, what have you been up to? I'm going to talk about a book that I know that you're currently reading, Carrie. I finished it last week. It's the book that our book club Mm. is reading for November. It's called The Last Animal by Ramona Asubel. And this is a novel that's about mother-daughter relationships and a woolly mammoth baby. So you're probably thinking, how did Aren't they all? Aren't they all? (laughs) How do these two things connect? One of our main characters is Jane, and she's the mother of two teen girls. She's also a scientist working on her PhD. Her husband, who was older than her, and her professor, uh, who was a paleontologist, the year before died in a car accident while researching the Iceman in the mountains of the Italian Alps. And so Jane... Uh, is offered a research position for the summer studying woolly mammoths in Siberia. But she takes her girls with her because she's not close with her family. She doesn't have anybody to leave them with. And so the girls go along. The two of them end up finding a perfectly preserved baby woolly mammoth while on a walk in the permafrost. So with a very complicated machine called a CRISPR that I don't really understand how it works, the scientists are able to edit genes in the mammoth's DNA to make it close enough to an elephant's uh, genes that they could reproduce. 
thus in theory bring back an extinct animal. So after the summer is over, Jane meets a wealthy donor at a conference who owns a personal zoo in Italy that has a female elephant. So Jane has access to these embryos. She steals a few, flies to Italy with the girls, and they together with this wealthy woman and her husband implant this embryo in the elephant. And against all odds, the elephant becomes pregnant. So now this all sounds very scientific, and it is, but in reality, the core of the story is about Jane and her daughters, Eve and Vera, who are very precocious and wise beyond their years, and they tag along with their mother's scientific trips, causing some trouble along the way, and maybe rebelling a little bit while they're all trying to process their grief. And there is a storyline about Jane in here that I think is really important to be a woman and not being taken seriously as a scientist by the teams of men that she works with. And that's actually one of the reasons that she goes a little rogue, steals these embryos, and and results in the birth of a baby woolly mammoth. This is a quirky book uh, that's part family drama and part, I guess I would kind of call it eco-fiction because she is talking a lot about the extinction not only of animals back in the Ice Age, but, you know, animals now and and if we were able to bring back some of the animals, would that help climate change? And, you know, there's some science stuff about that. But I also think that if you enjoyed Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, there are very similar vibes in this book to that. And, and I think it's worth your try. I enjoyed it. So again, the name of this book is The Last Animal by Ramona Asubel. And I'm zooming through it. It is it is such a fast read. I started it yesterday and I'm almost halfway through. Yeah. It's good really read. good. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Anna in the hot seat for The Fast and the Furious. And before we come back, we're going to hear a five-star read from Emily, who is a teacher and a librarian from Australia. A recent favourite five-star read of mine is Divine Rivals by Rebecca Ross. It's a young adult historical fantasy with amazing main characters of Iris and Roman who write enchanted letters to each other. Their banter and antics were fantastic and I'm looking forward to book two. Emily W. M. Wigster's Bookshelf on Instagram. We are back with Anna Petoniak, the author of The Helsinki Affair. We're going to ask her her fast and furious questions, which were never very fast because I always am curious and I have follow-up questions, but we'll, we'll plug along here. It has been a year since you visited Mexico. What was something that you especially loved about your trip? Uh, I would say the food. That's probably such a cliched response for anyone who's been to Mexico City, but my God, being able to just walk around and get one of the best tacos you've ever had from, you know, the woman on the street corner. It was just so, so wonderful. We ate really well in Mexico City. And that's something I still find myself daydreaming about, all of the food there. I actually had some of the best sushi I've ever had in Mexico City as well. It's like a massive international city. So in the same way that when you come to New York, you're not just going to get you know, American food, quote unquote, you can get amazing food from around the whole world. Same is true in Mexico City. 
it's just like a full sensory immersion. We did a lot of walking in Mexico City and the sounds, the smells, um, the people, the the textures of the different neighborhood. It's really amazing. It's very energizing. Well, now we move on to Russia. <laughs> We've gone from Mexico. This is the, you know, the globetrotting uh, questions here. I love so it. You, you have a thing for Russia. Your last two books deal with it. So what is a favorite Russian export? My favorite Russian export is probably Vladimir Nabokov, the okay. writer. And he's also probably the reason why I got so into Russia in the first place. I, I started reading Nabokov's fiction late in high school and was totally enchanted by it. I focused a lot of my studies on him in college. I wrote my senior thesis on Nabokov. And he's just one of those writers who has captivated me for a long time and kind of made me interested in Russia. So he's someone where I I probably owe a lot of my sensibility to him. I owe my fascination with Russia to him. I probably owe the desire to become a writer to him. He was one of those hmm. writers that you know, made me sit up and pay attention and think, my God, if I could ever do a fraction of what this person can do, like create that sense of magic and wonder, then that would be a pretty cool way to make a living. So I have to count him as my favorite Russian export. Do you have a favorite Nabokov book? It's his memoir, Speak Memory, Hmm. which is maybe a little less widely read than, you know, Lolita or some of his bigger blockbuster novels. But it is probably the book I've reread the most times in my life. I've probably read it close to half a dozen times now, if not more. And I get something different out of it every time. It's this beautiful portrait of his own childhood, his own upbringing, but it's also this incredible portrait of an artistic sensibility becoming formed. You sort of see him becoming a writer and learning to think like a writer and take in the world like a writer. And the writing is just so beautiful that it often stops you in your tracks or moves you to tears. So I I love that book and I highly recommend it. I am not a shopper. So do you have a favorite item that you've purchased this year? Oh, wow. My favorite thing that I've bought this year, and maybe it's cheating a little because I've bought it in years past too. It's not exactly new to me is the Fraser Fur Candle, which mm. you oh. can find on Amazon or other places, but it's basically a candle that smells like a Christmas tree. And I love Christmas. And I'll take any excuse to burn this candle year round. It's just the most wonderful and cozy and inviting scent. And finally now, seasonally appropriate for me to be burning <laughs> this candle again, but I've gotten into the habit of buying multiples of them off Amazon and sometimes keeping them all for myself because I go through them fairly rapidly, but also giving them as gifts to people around the holidays. So that's one of my tried and true favorites. Uh, we're kindred spirits here because I think that in w- one of my cabinets, I have about five evergreen scented candles. Mm-hmm. I love them. Yeah. Now, I don't burn them all year long because I guess I start to feel funny about it yeah. after like March. But I do love that smell so much. And we usually get a live tree. But even with a live tree, they kind of stop smelling like 
evergreen after yeah. a little while. They lose their scent. And so yeah. I totally agree with you on that. It's a great enhancement. And I am pretty shameless when it comes to enjoying Christmas year round. I mean, I'm <laughs> that girl who will absolutely start playing Christmas music in, you know, late September. Once it gets <laughs> I'm like, whatever. I'm going to live my life. I love yeah. it. It makes me happy. If it brings you joy, it's nobody else's joy. business, it's right? joy. Okay, last question. You say that baking birthday cakes is your love language. So I want to know what is your favorite cake to make and what is your favorite cake to eat? Mm. So it's probably the same cake to both make and eat, which is a vanilla funfetti cake with chocolate frosting. Like I love to make an elevated version of that sort of box cake uh-huh. That we all grow up loving, you know, the Duncan Hines or the Betty Crocker. And I got deep into baking during the pandemic. And my sister got married in September 2020. We did like a tiny backyard wedding for her. And I was in charge of making the wedding cake because it was only for 12 people. So it was basically just a scaled up birthday cake. And I had a lot of time on my hands, it being 2020. So I sort of went down a rabbit hole and really perfected the approach of a homemade funfetti cake. And it was so much fun. It's just such a source of delight. And to get a little specific, I really love the texture of a funfetti cake. I like how when you're eating the cake, you don't just have the consistent softness, but you get those little sprinkles uh, Mm. throughout each bite too. So it's pretty basic, but... It's hard to beat when it's done well. Absolutely. So this wedding cake had the sprinkles on it and everything? It did. It did. I went That's again, cool. deep down the rabbit hole. I looked up what are the best sprinkles to use in a funfetti cake, ones that won't just sink to the bottom, ones that won't bleed their color into the batter. I found these sort of higher end sprinkles on Amazon, figured out a way to decorate the exterior of the cake with sprinkles and... It was really fun. One of my proudest achievements to this day, <laughs> making that cake. <laughs> that and the Helsinki affair. That and the Helsinki affair. <laughs> that cake and this novel. Those are my <laughs> crowning glories. Well, Anna, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. You can find Anna Petoniak at AnnaPetoniak.com and on socials at Anna Petoniak. And that is spelled P-I-T-O-N-I-A-K. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at PerksofBeingABookLover.com. We're also on Instagram at PerksofBeingABookLoverPod and on Facebook at PerksofBeingABookLover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. Remember, Amy loves to get feedback. Me, not so much. Don't be a Scrooge. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.